I am Captain Matthew Gillespie of the Philadelphia Police Department's 18th District, and this is Aftermath Philadelphia. In this podcast, we hold critical conversations with those involved in reducing the epidemic of gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. This podcast features candid episodes that highlight different thoughts and perspectives while offering strategies to lower the violence. Several weeks ago, I had the opportunity to sit down with former Philadelphia District Attorney and federal inmate Seth Williams. In this episode, we discuss both his experiences growing up in the 18th District and as a young assistant district attorney. We examine his role as the Philadelphia District Attorney and the emphasis his office has put on gun crimes. We dug into his time as a federal inmate and analyzed our common beliefs for investment and second chances, along with why violent crimes and gun crimes must be taken seriously. The thoughts on this episode do not necessarily reflect the thoughts and ideas of the Philadelphia Police Department or the city of Philadelphia. All right, everyone, welcome back to Aftermath Philadelphia. I am Matt Gillespie, the captain of the 18th District out here in West Philadelphia. Um, For those of you that have been paying attention and following, we've had a busy few weeks with the gun violence. But today, uh, I really am excited to have a guest that has a unique perspective, not just on Philadelphia, but the criminal justice system. Seth, um, Seth Williams, I want to thank you for being here. Well, good afternoon, and thank you very much, Captain Gillespie, for having me. You know, before uh, we turned the mics on, there was a lot of information I learned about you. And just... You know, for the listeners, you know, there's there's bookends, kind of. You know, tell everybody, you're a lifelong Philadelphia resident, correct? Correct. Um, can you give everybody kind of the, the, the rundown of your experience in the criminal justice system? Sure. And again, thank you for having me, Captain. I am a lifelong resident of Philadelphia. I grew up just a few blocks mm-hmm. from here. In the 18th? In the 18th District, Cops Creek Parkway, between Caffin and Webster Street. And I do think I have a unique perspective on the criminal justice system in that I was an assistant district attorney for 10 and a half years. I started September the 8th of 1992. In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. I was, uh, I rose through the ranks from doing municipal court, juvenile court, the felony waiver unit, major trials. I became the assistant chief of the municipal court unit. I was asked by then district attorney Lynn Abraham to create the repeat offenders unit. And I did that with a geographic prosecution strategy. Um, I was very successful at that. I left, I was in private practice where I was a criminal defense attorney. I worked for a civil firm, Zarwin Baum. I was in the army for 19 years uh, as a defense attorney and prosecutor in the army. Um, I left as a major in the Pennsylvania Army National Guard as senior defense counsel of the 28th Infantry Division. So I was in charge of all the public defenders in uh, the National Guard in the 28th Infantry Division. Uh, I was the elected uh, district attorney. I was inspector general. I was also a um, federal defendant and federal inmate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think I have a very, very unique perspective on the criminal justice system uh, here in Philadelphia uh, and America as a whole. You know, one of the things I always say is, like, when dealing with this gun violence issue, there is not one answer. That's my personal opinion. Correct. That's not the department speaking. That's really me. Uh, There are the life experiences of individuals that we have to listen to. Correct. And that's really kind of what this is about. And, you know, I'm looking at statistics. The 18th District, right, the 18th District, West Philadelphia, 
the Schuylkill River to Cobbs Creek Market to Baltimore Avenue. We are up 94% in shooting victims. Mm -hmm. 94. So 35 people were shot year to date last year, but year to date this year we have 68. 68. Now this is citywide. You hear people say it's it's around the country, and it is. Um, but any these increases are just astronomical. Um, and let's just get into it. Like, what are your thoughts on what's driving it, how we can fix it? Because you are doing some things to help, and we're going to get into that later. Sure. Um, let's start with that. What are your thoughts on in terms of what's driving it? Well, I think you are absolutely correct in that we have to have a holistic approach. Um, but what's important to have a holistic approach to reduce gun violence mm -hmm. is to analyze the actual data of what's occurring where it's occurring, who's it occurring to, right? Correct. I don't know if that's grammatically correct, but we have to analyze all of the data. So it's like where it's happening, what time it's happening, um, who the victims are, right. who, who the suspects are, what social media is saying, correct. Uh, what the officers know, things of that nature. Correct. So we have to gather all that information. Why is that important? Because in the past, often things were done just anecdotally. Ah, uh, let's go do this. Let's round up all these people. No, we have to look yeah. at the actual data. And so as a result of my experience as an assistant district attorney, you know, I started off right here at 55th and Pine putting on preliminary hearings for people that were shot, gunpoint robberies, car thefts, you name it. Um, and then rising through the ranks, I saw how the system was broken and tried to get some of the best practices from around the country. And I began teaching, actually, at Penn State Abington, okay. teaching, teaching criminology. And it wasn't until then, as crazy as it might sound, I really started opening my mind up to what are best practices? How can we reduce gun violence in the city of Philadelphia? Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm very thankful. I read a book called Don't Shoot by Professor David Kennedy. Which I have on my shelf right over there. Okay. Yep, so I yep. read that book. Um, I ran for district attorney in 2005 with the idea of being smart on crime, not just tough, for us to address the root causes of criminal behavior mm -hmm. um, and to prosecute it in a smart way. Um, and so when I won in 2009, um, I had a great partner in Commissioner Ramsey, who was the leader of the Philadelphia Police Department at that time. Mm -hmm. And I instituted uh, community-based prosecution, assigning the DAs geographically. Um, to mirror the divisions of the police department. Um, and that worked very well, but that allowed us to then move to Gunstat, where we took what happened in New York, right? Commissioner Timney, when he came to Philadelphia, he sure. had Copstat. Okay. We, we used Gunstat to specifically pinpoint um, through PowerPoint presentations where all the gun violence was. Okay. And to gather all of the data on who was being shot, what time of day, all that information, mm -hmm. tracking the groups that might have been involved with retaliation. And that really helped us to understand the who, the where, the when, mm -hmm. and how we can utilize the partnership of the police department, law enforcement, the district attorney's office, community groups, mm -hmm. faith-based organizations to address this collectively, because all of us are in this together. No, I agree. And you know, I was telling you earlier how my life was shaped because I recognize that we have to reform a broken, uh, racist in many ways, classist criminal justice system, um, but at the same time, we have to ensure public safety. safety. It's not a question of either or. We have to do both. And I, th and I think we can, and that's, that's right. the main question today. Yeah, and we so I learned from my life experience, I was born here, 
My father was in charge of the playground mm-hmm. at the top of the hill between Catherine and Webster on Cobb Street Parkway. Okay. A very good friend of his was Sergeant Frank Von Collin, who in August of 1970 was murdered by men who were angry about racist systems in America. But Sergeant Von Collin was an innocent person that day. Mm-hmm. So he was a friend of my father's. He was kind to me as a child when I would go down to the park art house wanting just cold water yeah. on a hot summer day, right? Um, the men who killed him were angry, um, but they vented it in the wrong way. But the police response, I thought, was disproportionate as well. So from a very early age, I thought we have to be fair to victims. We have to respect law enforcement. We have to um, understand both sides of what's going on. And so I think to answer your question, a holistic approach really examines, well, why are people, one, shooting? Um, what can we do to stop that? Um, how can we stop people? How can we stop the flow of commerce of the handguns getting into, you know, uh, 60th Street? How do we stop that? We have to investigate that as well. Um, we have to also recognize that the people that are willing to walk around just possessing a gun, a, we call that a violation of the Uniform Firearms Act, yeah. we have to severely deal with them as well as the people that shoot people. You know, So all of those things, uh, we have to get people the conflict resolution skills. We have to help people with the trauma that they need. But people that are willing to shoot people, we have to hold them accountable. You know, there, there's two things that popped up, and I, I really do agree with everything that you just said. Um, the role of community groups and faith-based organizations, which I want to get into, um, but the, the those that are possessing firearms. Sure. So from what I see now, like my, my perspective now as a captain with almost 20 years on is different than the police officer that started in the 24th District. Right. And I think time and experience has changed that. You know, I see those that carry firearms, because I told you earlier, every single firearm arrest comes over my desk. Sure. I read everything top to bottom, who the person was, the circumstances, outcome of the court. And that's because you care. And we need commanders that care, not those as well. It's just a statistic. Each victim is someone's son. True, true. And someone's father. And we have to treat them as if it's our own brother, our own sister. And, and, and on that note, you know, one of the things that I am proud of with this organization is there are dozens of commanders that really do care. Sure. And, and that's, the, that's the first step. Correct. you got to care, and then let's get down to business. Right. But with the firearms, you know, what I have seen in 2020 or 2019 and 2021, really three categories. Those that are, those young people that are carrying guns because it's cool. It gives you status. Not really sure if they want to use it, but it's just a thing to do. Then those that are carrying it because they're in fear for some reason. They're getting bullied, they're getting threatened, and they don't know any other way. Correct. And then there are those that are carrying it because they are on a mission to go out and use it and inflict harm on somebody. Um, And I think, from my experience, those are the three that are categories that we have. Okay. And they need to be prosecuted appropriately. Right. And, you know, you get up to that second, third, fourth firearm possession, you do need to go upstate. And that's just my opinion so again, for this. all this stems from gathering the data. Yeah. And we have to f- gather the data and then analyze it. And what we'll see is that we had over 301 homicides so far, so year far, to date, yep. here in Philadelphia. Um, uh, in 2013 and 2014, we I think we had 248 max for the entire year. Yeah. That was as a result of us creating Gunstat, mm-hmm. Focus deterrence and the police and the DAs working together. Um, but what we saw then is true today. About 40%, the leading cause of the homicides in Philadelphia, close to 
our argument. That's the number one. Yeah. And so understanding that, if we can understand, well, well why do we have these homicides? Well, if 40% are our actual arguments, then we can analyze it and address it in some ways by recognizing that. We have to also understand that the majority of the guns um, are group shared, if you will. There's not like just one guy's running around when he has all these guns. It's just that Matt had an argument because either Seth stepped on his Tims, fouled him, uh, disrespected him in some kind of way, yeah. said something about his girlfriend on something on social media. So then Matt goes to Chuck because he knows Chuck is in his crew mm-hmm. and he gets the, the Glock from him. And then they respond. and so But they got the gun originally probably as a result of stealing it from someone, a lawful person, or from a straw purchaser. So, again, that brings us to another part of this holistic approach. We have to address the conflict resolution skills that these young men need. Mm -hmm. We also have to address how they get the handguns. So in 2005, when I ran, I remember speaking specifically to State Senator Fumo and Jerry Monazire, who was the president of the NAACP, and explaining that when I was a kid, you can go into the Hideaway Lounge, which was the corner of 63rd and Catherine, Mm -hmm. right? And you could rent a gun. Wow. And so what that translated them, they had never heard of it as a concept, but we have to prosecute people that are profiting off of the bloodshed, the people that are making money off of it, the, also the people that are selling guns illegally, the straw purchasers as well. And that's how we created the Gun Violence Task Force with money that came from the state mm-hmm. to utilize generally retired police officers to work with the DA's office to go after those straw purchasers. And, and on that note, you know, the Attorney General's office has provided a lot of resources to the 18th. Correct. Recently, um, even last year just for that so that is going on um it's a little harder to kind of investigate and work your way up the food chain of really who's buying that gun or or guns but But, we have a holistic approach but it's necessary that's part of it we have to go after we have to do the prevention stuff like you do a great job with your skills and drills right those types of things rec centers pal teaching kids conflict resolution giving them alternatives we have to do that we have to do all that we can to stop the flow of the handguns right into mm-hmm. the system. We have to do all that we can to hold people accountable that just possess yeah. the guns. And then those that are willing to go out and rob people at gunpoint, shoot them, carjack them, then we have to treat them severely, fairly, and with due process, though. Okay? Good points. But we have to hold them accountable because if people feel as though there's no accountability, if it's, either, if it's in your house with your children, yeah. if it's in prison where I was, or if it's on the streets of 52nd Street, if there's no accountability, then it's just the wild, wild west. You know, I want to give you some statistics and getting back to the accountability. 175,000 people either live or work in the 18th District. So the river to Cobbs Creek, market to Baltimore Avenue. Um, out of that 175,000, not perfect, not not spot on, but to my best estimate, it's about 30 people are mm-hmm. the drivers of sure. this gun violence. Thir- 30. Now, right. these are 30 individuals that have either been arrested, we know are involved in these types of things. 30. Right. And so through Gunstat and through Focus Deterrence, that's exactly what we worked on. That number is about 7,000 in Philadelphia as a total. Um, for those men mm-hmm. that are most likely to be shot and most likely to do the shooting. 
And if you remember a Venn diagram from like seventh grade yep. science, Absolutely. when you put the two different sure. things together, the you overlap, see the, yep. the intersection and the union, the mm-hmm. overlap. Well, in Philadelphia, those most likely to sh- get shot and those most likely to do the shooting, the intersection and the union in that Venn diagram mm-hmm. is about 75%. That's what wow. we learn with focus deterrence. So if that's true, then we can identify those most likely to be shot and those most likely to mm-hmm. do the shooting. And so what I said was, one, we have to hold them accountable, but we also have to provide them with the services because some of them want to get out of the game. And we have to give them the off-ramp to get out of the game in a way that they can save face and do something productive because what we would tell them with uh, folks at turns was, look, we don't don't want to go to your funeral and I don't want to have to prosecute you for murdering someone. We'll do either, but we don't want to. We don't want to. to. Yeah, we don't want to do it. And we want to give you an option. But we have to to identify those people and it's generally as a result of group violence. And that's really what we are dealing with here a lot. Um, a lot of groups, my block, my street, my neighborhood, these kind of beefs. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking of um, Jabari Parker, I believe his name is. He's the West Philadelphia Business Association president. He just did a uh, opinion piece in sure. the, yeah, uh, I read it in the in Inquirer. The he brought up a phenomenal point. And, and, again, this is me. This is my opinion. I fully support this, that those carrying guns – need to be addressed and prosecuted appropriately, but also let's not forget about them when their time is up and they come out. Correct. And there is a lot of money being invested in uh, violence prevention. And, you know, from your own experiences, when you go upstate, you know, this individual is arrested with a gun, they get sentenced to two years or more, they come upstate, Let's, let's, let's remember them when they come out and give them a chance to get back on their feet. And, again, saying that we still will prosecute you if we need to again, but we're not forgetting about you just because we sent you away Correct. for a certain amount of time. Um, your thoughts on um, you know, that prevention aspect, the, the, the groups that are out there helping, what are your thoughts on that? Well, we have to let them know that we know they're there. Right. <laughs> okay, Good so point. these 30 men or these 30 individuals, they need to know that the police department, that the community knows what they're up to. Right, and that through folks' deterrence, we actually brought them in, and we talked to them, and we told them because my DAs were assigned geographically, they had all the data, mm-hmm. all the back intel information sure. on each of these individuals, and we would say, hey, they we'd stand them up and tell them all the information we knew about them, which blew their mind. Yeah, and, and we say, look, we know what you're doing, we know you're here, you're here with Pookie, and he's here with Man Man. Yeah. And all of you guys, we know what you're doing. And what we did was we held them accountable Mm -hmm. as a group. So we said, look, Matt and Chuck, we know you guys are working together and doing this, that, and the other. Matt, if Chuck gets arrested for a VUFA, we're going to hold you accountable too. Because you have an open probation. And we're going to, if you have an illegal cable hookup, we're going to shut it down. Man, that made your your grandma real upset. But... You also provided them the opportunities to get out of the game if they wanted to. Correct. But see, this became, they were like policing each other. Mm -hmm. And I kind of saw this on an episode of The Wire, actually, okay? okay? And and it was called New Amsterdam was the episode. I remember. I know the episode well. One of my favorite shows. So instead of legalizing the sale of of drugs, okay, and I had 
um, what was his name? Doctor, there's a guy, there's a mural of him in Palatine Village. Um, they had started with the hard hats back in like the, the late 80s and early 90s. Herman, Herman Rice. Okay. Um, so if we focus a lot of energy and resources in a small community um, and let the folks know, look, what we told them is like, we're not going to accept the gun violence. Mm. So then the different guys in that crew that they knew we were watching, they policed each other. They're like, look, they're going to bring too much heat on us if you do something with a gun. If you get on scepter with a gun, if you shoot somebody down the park, if you rob somebody with a gun, they're going to come at all of us. So let's do whatever we're doing, but just don't do it with guns. And so that significantly reduced gun violence by uh, like 80% in the geographic area when we started with Focus Deterrence, and then and we grew from there. We have, um, so we have the Group Violence Initiative here Correct. right now. It's a, it's a, a branch off or a, a modified version, I would say. Uh, it did start out in the 18th District. COVID played a part in, in what we were kind of limited in doing. Um, we have had some success. So we have notified the groups, not always in person, mm -hmm. but uh, even this Saturday, uh, the team, Office of Violence Prevention, is going out, uh, letting the groups know, like, hey, listen, we know what's going on, right. but here are a stack of resources. Here's call me if you want employment, et sure. cetera, et cetera. One of the things that's lacking is the, is the accountability aspect. Right. So it is hard to kind of, you know, say one thing in terms of, like, you got to get out of the game or else – if right. there is no or else. Sure. And so before I came to visit you, I was with George Mosey, who's the executive yep. director of the Philadelphia Anti-Drug, Anti-Violence mm -hmm. Network. He was my first assistant when I was a DA. He's doing the God, God's work right now. Yes, he is. I respect the work that Erica Atwood is doing and Tumar Alexander. I understand what GVI's goal is, and it's good. Um, but you're right. We have to have the prevention. We have to have, uh, was it the Iron Fist? Right in a in a Sounds glove, a, yep. how they call that? Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. But we have to. The people have to know though. If they violate this, there's a there, there's a consequence. If you do shoot someone and kill someone, or if you're out there running around with a gun, there's going to be uh, a consequence. A consequence. Yeah. And so that's what people have to recognize. And again, what's very important to to learn, and what I learned when I was teaching mm. at Penn State Abington, okay, was that. It's not the severity of punishment that changes behavior. It's the certainty of punishment. That's, That's a very true. Good point. Can you say that again? Yeah, it's say not that again. the severity of punishment that changes behavior. Okay. It's the certainty. Okay. That's a just a behavioral therapy. Um, if you're training dogs to do tricks, if you're training children to potty train them, or if you want to change a criminal behavior in an adult. Um, it's not the severity of punishment. It's the certainty. So if your dog were, like you, I'm sure you have yeah, a Yeah, I, I have a dog. If your dog uh, goes to the bathroom in the wrong place, if you were to go over and break its leg, the dog would be very scared and frightened, but it wouldn't associate the fact that it urinated on the floor with you breaking its leg. It would just be afraid of you. You're far more likely to change behavior by rewarding positive behavior than by punishing negative consequences, okay. negative behavior, right? So again, when something happens, if the person possesses a gun illegally, they have to be arrested quickly, right? And then the district attorney's office needs to hold them accountable quickly. 
It's not necessarily true that they have to get a 30-year sentence for something, but there has to be a sentence, and then progressively it has to grow worse for that individual. Now, I do believe when I was a DA, I was opposed to many mandatory minimums, and I reduced I wouldn't prosecute mandatory minimums on a lot of drug cases because I saw that we were sending people to jail for possessing like two sugar packets worth of crack. Mm-hmm. And the recidivism rate was like 63%. So what we were doing didn't make sense from a return on investment, like a right-wing perspective, mm-hmm. or from a left-wing Mother Teresa, let's help people. It just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. But I think when it comes to people possessing guns illegally and people shooting people, um, as much as possible, we need to let people know there used to be these ads on buses that if you committed a crime with a gun, you were going to get this. And we needed those buses to run in the neighborhoods that were most affected by the gun violence. Right? People need to know that there is going to be a consequence. Hey, if I do a retail theft and I steal shaving cream or food and I'm homeless, well, okay, well, the system and the DA's officer are going to. Tr- Treat me as a person because of that and give me resources. But a person who commits the crime with a gun. Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, like you said, there's still gradations of that. There could be the kid who's just, he's being bullied. And that's why he had the 22 or a little cap gun that he made. And, and I think we, right? But the guy's got the AK-47 yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, who is firing in the park. Um, no, no, no. We're treating that person significantly and severely. And, and there's a public safety, it's a public safety risk. Right? I mean, it, it really is. Um, and I think getting back to what we said earlier, you can have both. You can have reform where we help people out of maybe the predicament they're in, but we also protect the public by putting those people, those most violent repeat offenders correct uh, off our streets for an appropriate amount of time while also reinvesting in them when they come back captain i can't agree with you more it is a false choice to tell people that we either have to reform the criminal justice system or we have to have public safety no Uh, the people deserve both the people deserve both the people deserve a system that is fair that is not racist or classist that is true and we have to get rid of all the vestiges of just a broken system. True. But at the same time, the people demand and deserve to be able to walk. Part of the reason why I wanted to be an assistant district attorney when I was in law school was because my mother and my favorite aunt, my aunt Shirley, who lived at 6135 Ellsworth Street here in the 18th district. Okay. I wanted them to be able to walk in the park and not carry sticks. Right? Because they both had diabetes and they went for walks with these sticks. They weren't walking with sticks because they were shepherds. Right? Okay, they were walking with them because kids from our neighborhood would try to steal their purses, even though they didn't have any purses. They're just walking in the park, right, along Cobb Creek Parkway. And so I wanted to make sure that we held those people accountable, but at the same time, we did it in a way that was fair. The majority of people that call 911 in Philadelphia are African-American people, are black and brown people. Now, they want the person who did this, who broke into their house or stole their car or their nephew who has mental health issues, Mm -hmm. they want that person to be treated fairly when Officer Gillespie shows up. But they want that person out of their house in that instant. I I agree. I can't tell you um, 
You know, you hear a lot about defund the police. Defund the police, less police, less police. You know, what I hear, especially in the 18th district, um, from the community members, those that are most vested, those that we work with so much, even even those that we don't know, that we just walk down 6100 Ellsworth, sure. is we want to see more of you, but we want good policing. Correct. We want professional good policing. We need more cops out here. Right, and we need what well, we need. We need better services. Now, how the police department does that? What, what I used to be dumbfounded when I was an assistant DA mm-hmm. or the DA. At any given time, about half of the police cars in any given district were just broken and weren't running. <laughs> so that significantly changed the staffing that day. Okay, you don't have to comment because I know you you don't need to, but I'm saying. People don't understand. So we do need to hire good police officers. We have to train them to deal with people that are autistic, that people that have mental health problems. Absolutely. We have to train them on how to use their, you know, when to use their stun gun, when to use... The appropriate right, amount of force. Their, their levels of force. Exactly. When, what's excessive. Exactly. We have to teach them all of that. I'm not opposed to us also hiring people that will work with the police that are like social workers that go out and Likewise. handle the issues that don't require a young officer Gillespie to show up that has his Glock on him. I, I because things escalate sometimes that don't need too, to too quickly. That don't need to. And you know what? I, I'm a big component in re-imaging mm-hmm. policing. Like, listen, there are calls that we don't need to go to. There, there really aren't. You know, is it? And I'm just gonna. And again, my opinion. Um, towing cars is right. that something that we can reevaluate and maybe relocate reallocate our resources to another you know a, another thing we can then patrol we can then be walking instead of the sure. hour or two or three it takes for one police officer to tow a car um, I do want to get into one thing before we we wrap it up here in terms of resources sure um, you know you left the district attorney's office yep, 2017 and, June the 29th and now you are back and I just would like you to talk maybe about um, the experience when you left and how you are contributing through the vocational training that you are providing to the, the young people of Philadelphia to try to get them back out on their feet. And because that's connected to helping lower the gun violence. Sure. Well, you know, I loved being the district attorney of Philadelphia. Um, and I uh, feel a sense of uh, I need to apologize to um, Philadelphians. I was federally prosecuted, I received gifts. I should have reported all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, some I probably should not have accepted, but I never had any criminal intent for what I did. But uh, I was prosecuted, and I got a 60-month sentence. Um, and but that gave me a, an opportunity to live with and learn from uh, a lot of men who had been lifelong criminals. Um, and I learned a lot about them and the trauma that many of them had experienced through their lives. And I think it gave me a very unique perspective on how to go about trying to prevent crime. As a DA, as an assistant DA, as a politician, as a candidate, I always talked about the need to do all that we could to prevent crime. Um, all that we needed to do to reduce recidivism, the rate of people who get arrested over and over and over again. Um, and so while I was away on what I referred to as my uh, federally sponsored sabbatical, um, I taught GED. Uh, and I really loved that experience. I taught beginner saxophone. I taught beginner piano. I taught spin class. 
All right. Um, 19 of my students earned their GED. What wow. I learned from that, Captain, was that the majority, uh, almost all of these men had suffered some form of trauma that was never addressed. So we need to provide community-based um, mental health treatment as early as possible for people we can identify. People know the kids on their block that are out doing, you know, hurting animals, hurting insects. Those are early signs that something's wrong. Bullying each right? other. So we need to get kids help earlier. Um, a lot of that ended in the 80s. We didn't stop treating people for mental health. It's where we treat them. Now, the number one provider of mental health treatment in the United States is the New York County prison system. Yep. Number Rikers two is, is the Los Angeles County prison system. Number three is Cook County, Chicago. So now what we do is we wait for people to act out, get convicted, and then we give them substandard mental health treatment in prison. So I think we need to identify, prevent a lot of crimes by pre- helping people earlier, of course, improving education. But I taught GED, and what I found was the majority of these men never had problems getting jobs. They had problems keeping jobs. Okay. And so uh, what I, f- I began teaching um, a class on workforce development, resumes, Right, interview prep, but also just conflict resolution, financial literacy. Very important. These are things that people need. Whatever life skills, really. Part of the reason why I got into the trouble that I was into is I did not balance my checkbook. Right, Mm -hmm. I was. I did. I lived beyond my means. I was trying to keep my kids in private school. I was trying to do this and that. And okay, so no matter who you are, we have to try to abide by these same. I said fifty, thirty, twenty. 50% 50% of all your money, nothing more than that. That's all of your living expenses. Right? Rent, your gotcha. car, your clothes, car food, all that. 30% on non-essential expenditures. 20% on savings. And try to keep that balance no matter who you are, and I'll keep you out of trouble. Um, but when I came home, I decided, you know, I want to keep doing what I want, what I think I'm best at. And I want to talk about preventing gun violence. And that's how you and I first connected through Twitter. Right. Yep. Um, but I also want to do all that I can to give second chances to returning citizens, homeless veterans, and the chronically unemployed. And I was fortunate to be hired um, not only by George Mosey at PAN, um, but I was hired by the National Center for Institutions and Alternatives to create a vocational training center at 801 West Girard Avenue. And we provide free did I say free? Free training, vocational training, uh, for anyone over 18. Say say the address again for everybody. 801 West Girard Avenue. Anyone over 18? Anyone over 18. The only requirement is that you be over 18 and that you be SNAP eligible. Okay. Um, now, when you say vocational training, what, what does that include? I'm looking at the flyer here. So too many people are just caught in a cycle of jobs where they're making minimum wage mm-hmm. and there's really no future for them. And, and that's one of my not, not to know, that's one of my when we talk to the services and sure. the other agencies involved, it's hard to get out of this cycle when you're making seven, eight, nine, ten dollars an hour and have one, two children, whatever it might right. be. And so what I learned from the men I was with in prison is that often there are barriers for people who are coming home from prison to get jobs. Or housing. Those are the two most important things to, to break the cycle. If we want to stop people who come from prison from reoffending, housing and jobs. And so what we do is we provide free 
vocational training in either HVAC mm -hmm. or the culinary arts, and they receive a certification that's wow, industry-recognized that's portable. So if you finish our 15-week program, you'll take the EPA Universal 608 exam, which is the entry-level certification to be an HVAC technician, to install air conditioners, install air compressors, ventilation systems, duct work, to get free on. And this includes returning citizens, anybody, over 18. 90% of our students are returning citizens. Good for you. About 50% of our students live in shelters for the homeless, transitional housing across the city. Um, we have women, men, um, you don't need a GED. And in addition to the vocational training, the actual technical skills, 25% mm. of what we teach really addresses what research at Harvard and Stanford says, 85% of the skills that you need to keep a job aren't the hard skills, right? For you to be a good captain, it's not how proficient you are at the firing range, right? Or putting handcuffs on. Those might be like technical skills about being Absolutely. a cop, right? We want you to be a good aim and aim at center mass. But the, the soft skills, do you show up on time? Right? Do you care? Do, do you care? Do you resolve conflict, conflict in a healthy way with your coworkers, with the public? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that are going to help you keep a job. All of your listeners, they can think of coworkers that were fired. For the most part, when I was at Domino's Pizza on Haverford Avenue when I was in college, it wasn't that the guy couldn't cook a pizza or couldn't deliver a pizza. He just didn't show up on time. The greatest ability is availability. Mm -hmm. Be there. And don't curse people out. Don't get another tattoo over your forehead that says "Don't sleep." That that that, that might be a problem. Well, listen, I I have to say, you know, from your unique experience, from one end of the spectrum to the other, and everywhere you know, in between, and everywhere in between, you know, you really articulated what I think most people believe that we have to invest in prevention, invest in those coming back out of the system. And hold those accountable that need to be appropriately. Correct. And if you do that and we get that synergy, I really think Philadelphia, this gun violence epidemic, is going to go down. You know, um, It takes everybody working together. It takes everybody working together. And, and knowing their role. Knowing their role and people like yourself um, and the vocational training, the skills and drills, the block captains, the district attorney's office, the Gun police, buybacks. Gun buybacks, all these things. Um, Seth, I'm really appreciative of you coming on here. I know how busy you are because uh, we do stay in contact, and this was very insightful for me. You know, well, I appreciate the opportunity so, to support you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. This is uh, this is wonderful. I'm glad that uh, we were able to sit down and do this, and uh, hopefully, we'll do it again. I will, and I just ask that you, um, for yourself and for the men and women that work under you, you do all that you can to help them deal with the trauma mm -hmm. that they. Uh, are confronted with daily as a result of Seeing the majority of people that are shot in the city of Philadelphia, 80% um, are saved because they are yep. scooped up and taken to a hospital, not by the fire medics, but by police officers. It's uh, That's one of my biggest worries is the, the, the mental and emotional toll. Correct. Um, just for the listeners, on July 4th, in a three-hour period, the 18th District... Uh, scooped and drove six separate people to the hospital, three of whom did lose their life. Right. And so, so I know as the district attorney, I had two Blackberries. Um, and one went off all day. 
right? I was in the trauma bay when Sergeant Robert Wilson III was declared mm-hmm. dead, right? I was there when uh, the two firefighters, a lieutenant and another firefighter, and the building collapsed on them, and I'm in the hospital with their bodies in, in body bags. Um, I didn't do enough to help myself. And so I just want to make sure that you are doing all that you can to deal with the trauma um, that you face in a very healthy way and that you promote that uh, for your officers that, you know, when I was a DA, too often we just we all went out drinking together. Um, and we can't allow ourselves just to numb ourselves through Jack Daniels and martinis. We have to find healthier ways to talk to each other and to deal with our own trauma. And I think that's a great way to end it. Um, it's traumatizing for everybody, but we're going to still grind and get out of this. So, again, thank you very much. Thank I you, appreciate Captain. it. Seth Williams, West Philadelphia. Born and raised. Born and raised. Thank you very much. <laughs>